Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas became famous for games. Money is won and lost on these games, but they are still just games. Game shows on television are not a part of the world of gambling, but are still an opportunity for the participant to win money. Have you ever been on one of those shows, or are you just a fan? Well, today you'll meet Mark Richards, who has been a host on several shows, and he'll tell you how you can get on one of these programs. Also today, you'll hear from your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, who will discuss the radical changes in Vegas dining over the last decades. And gourmet chef Jason Wells is back discussing which cookbooks you need in your kitchen library. In the second half hour, once again, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. On today's show, you'll meet one of the NFL's finest general managers, Ernie Accorsi, who led the Baltimore Colts, Cleveland Browns, and New York Giants. But first, let's meet a man who knows his way around a game show. Let's go to Vegas, baby. Let's go tonight. Let's go tonight. Have you ever watched a game show and said to yourself, what could I do to get on that game show? What can I do to win some money? Well, we have perhaps the best expert in the entire nation on that, Mark Richards. He's been doing this for years and years. He's taught people how to do it. He's hosted game shows. Basically, if it's got something to do with the game show, he's been involved, including the very popular Jeopardy. First of all, Mark, welcome. What is it that people need to do to get on the show? How do you get the attention of the guys that, and the gals that pick the people to go on the show? Well, the main thing you have to do is know the game you're auditioning for. See, the problem is the majority of people who attend game show auditions don't really know the game. Oh, I watched it a couple of times when I was sick, or, you know, uh, didn't make it to work, or whatever, but they don't really know the game. So they go to these auditions because they, they found out that they can make thousands of dollars being on a game show. So they go there unprepared. So they sit there like, like they're going wait, waiting in the doctor's office. And you gotta remember, when, as soon as you walk into a game show audition, the contestant coordinators and the producers are watching you. They're, they're scouting you around. They already know who they would love to have on the show, but yeah. now you've got to take a test and play a sample game and all that stuff. So when you go to the audition, you first of all, you have to dress in whatever it makes you feel comfortable. Whatever you know you look good in, that's what you wear in the audition. And then as soon as you walk into the audition room with 35 or 40 other people, you want to stand out among the, the others by chit-chatting with the person sitting on either side of you. Look like you're having fun. You're really excited to be there. And don't sit there with your arms crossed and your legs crossed and look bored. Because we, as the contestant coordinators, we see you. We already know that, nah, forget that person. You know. So you're on from the front. minute you walk into the audition room, you are on. And then you've got to play a mock game. They watch you how you play the mock game. If you play well, and they like your personality and your attitude, uh, there's a good chance you'll be on the show, especially if you're from out of state. Most of the game shows, in fact, all of them, except for Millionaire, uh, are taped in Los Angeles. Millionaire's taped here in Vegas. Um, and if you're from out of state, 
and you let the people know that you're from Chicago, for example, and you're only in town for another few days, if, the next, if they're taping the next day or so, they'll put you on the next, on the next taping session because they want people from out of state. You know, see, most of the people who go to the auditions are from Los Angeles, Southern California. So it's, it gets tiresome after a while. From Los Angeles, here's so-and-so, here's from Los Angeles. So even on Jeopardy, when we did the uh, tapings in, in 84, uh, originally from Chicago, I mean, you might have been born there and for two weeks later you moved to LA, right? But you're originally from Chicago. Or originally from New York, originally from Miami, whatever. This way, people in Miami are cheering for you. <laughs> you know, people from Chicago are cheering for you. You see, but that's how that's how it works. And again, you've got to uh, when you go to these auditions, you've got to uh, you have to act. You know, put on a, a show. You know, and make you and stand out and say something interesting about yourself. When when you're asked to stand up and you've got 30 seconds to to talk about yourself, say something interesting. Well, my so is that something like you actually could kind of prepare it? I mean, not so like you're reading it, but just that so you're kind of your elevator speech. Uh, yeah, practice in front of your friends, your family, you, say, you know, j just get some feedback from them. But always say, have something interesting to say about yourself, like, uh, my mother was a witch. Oh, really? You know, you know it's something to stand out. And, and uh, because as the contestant coordinator, uh, if I like you, you know, you've got personality and, and uh, you, you dress well and you're interesting, uh, I'll put you on the show because if I like you, millions of other people will like you. Right. If I don't like you personally, I won't put you on the show because if I don't like you, other people won't like you. It's like if you're having a party, you're going to invite people who you know will get along with your, with your other party guests. Well, and you know, you mentioned it's important to have, to, to, to know these games well. So I'm guessing... For Jeopardy, you might want to have one personality, but if you're going to go on, say, The Price is Right, a little different. You're going to want to be more exuberant. Does that kind of put, play into, depending on what the game is? Uh, yeah, like Jeopardy, we don't want Price is Right type of attitudes. You know, we want people that are smart and uh, personable and uh, know how to play the game. Uh, Price is Right, you know, they have 300 people lined up to go to the taping. Each has a name on it and a number. And, and let's say I'm the producer. Before they, they go into the, office, into the studio, I'm walking up and down the line, just looking for people who have interesting looks about them. Now, these people don't know I'm the producer. I mean, maybe some of them do, but most people don't. They think, oh, here's some guy, he's trying to make, you know, break into the line or something. You know? So anyway, three people at a time, uh, I, read, I interview them and, uh, hey, Stephen, where are you from? You know, what do you do? How long you have, you know, blah, blah. In 15, 20 seconds, each person I interview. And then they go into the studio. Right next to me, sitting down or with a clipboard, right before they go into the studio, is my secretary. And I have a code phrase. For example, if I say, hey, Stephen, have a good day. I'm indicating to her to make note of you. So... Maybe there's 30 people who I said, hey, have a nice day. So before the show is taping, we know where you're sitting. You know, the cameramen know where you're sitting. The director knows where you're sitting. And we make decisions who we want to pick for the show.
More with Mark Richards, former host of the TBS show Starcade and former contestant coordinator of Jeopardy in just a few moments. Time now for a visit with your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. Do you love dining in Vegas? Well, you have options galore, but that wasn't always the case. If you think back to the, the old days, you know, the Sinatra and DeMar, they'd have one great restaurant in these places and so forth. But as you said, it's not only about gambling anymore, and consequently, restaurant, and that's why they're so expensive, they're not the 99, or I guess you can still find 99 cent breakfast and stuff, but by and large, that is not the norm anymore. Yeah, it used to be that the gambling revenue that casinos would make would pay for those restaurants. They would pay for free show tickets. They would, they subsidized the parking. That's a perfect example. They're, it's not subsidizing the parking anymore. There's parking fees because the gambling revenue has gone down. Every venue has to be self-sustaining, whether it's a show or a restaurant. So I think in a lot of ways that's great because it raises the quality of the food because the free food or cheap food people was getting, they, it wasn't that great. So now the, that source of revenue, we're paying people, we're actually, we have to be profitable. We've got to make it better. And we have to compete with 50 other great restaurants here in Vegas. Probably Sometimes even within the same casino, there's 10 great restaurants. Thanks, Scott. Remember to visit VitalVegas.com every day and follow Scott on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manchie. Hi, this is Andy Martello, Las Vegas entertainer, award-winning author, voice of the Las Vegas Aviators, and generally tired human being. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. This is a time-sensitive message from the Back Pain Relief Hotline. Millions of people across the nation are suffering from back pain. Are you? Are you on Medicare? Is it hard to walk, to bend over, or even do simple things? Well, we have great news. If you're on Medicare, you could qualify to receive a pain-relieving back brace. We'll handle all the Medicare paperwork if you qualify and ship your new back brace right to your door. Make sure you have your Medicare card ready and please call Call us right now and get all the details. It only takes a few minutes. Imagine doing everything you used to do before your back pain. With your Medicare card ready, call the Back Pain Relief Hotline today. Call now. 800-419-1964. 800-419-1964. That's 800-419-1964. Paid for by the Health Alert Hotline. To re-emerge stronger and safer than ever, ask yourself these crucial questions. Should all restaurants, retailers, and venues have new safety and sanitation procedures in place? As a business owner, how can you assure your valued guests that proper protocols are being followed? How can you give your guests confidence knowing that you've prioritized their health and safety? Introducing VirusSafe Pro, a revolutionary mobile technology software that provides checklists, reminders, and confirmations to help your team perform health and safety measures right on schedule. It allows you to close the information gap in the workplace by giving your employees a dedicated source of credible instructions in a timely manner, right from their mobile devices. Validate compliance with health and wellness standards, provide regular safety and health messaging, and confirm that approved protocols have been performed all in real time and an easy to read dashboard. Tracking and verifying health and safety procedures in your business has never been more important. To learn more about how VirusSafe Pro can help you reopen, visit VirusSafePro.com.
You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Mark Richards, who creates, develops, and produces game shows for television, radio, cruise ships, corporate events, and more. So anyway, that's they pre-screen everyone who uh, goes into the studio, and they already know who they're going to pick for the show. You know, you mentioned Drew Carey, and I wanted to ask you, you've been a game show host yourself, and uh, you've known, you've worked with all these guys. He was a little different in the sense that he was an established star beforehand and then got into that. Were you surprised this worked as well as it had, or did you just see that like, no, it's, it's a perfect fit? Well, here's something interesting. It had to be about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, I was at a gaming convention here in town, and Drew Carey was doing a Whose Line Is It Anyway? And there was a uh, slot machine or a, a video a slot machine with Drew Carey on it. And he was there at the opening day where they were demonstrating the game. So I even approached him. He's from Cleveland, and I was a DJ in Cleveland. So that was got us talking. And I said, have you ever ho- thought of hosting a game show? Because I had some game show ideas back then. He said, no, I'm not interested in hosting a game show. You know, because I was going to pitch him. I was going, hey, I've got an idea for a, a couple of game shows. But he said, he no, nah, I'm not interested, you know. And then, of course, he got the prices right. <laughs> But here's something of interest. In 1986, uh, I went to Cleveland. No, in 1985, Jeopardy went on the road to Cleveland. We did the contestant searches around the country. We went to Houston. We went to Baltimore. We went to uh, Cleveland. We went to Boston. You know, but Cleveland, I was there on radio for 13, 14 years, and. Uh, I'll never forget, uh, Drew, Drew, I remember Drew Carey, in an article I read about him, said he once auditioned for Jeopardy when Jeopardy came to town in 1985, but he was rejected. If he was rejected, I'm the one that rejected him. You know, because, but I didn't know who Drew Carey was back then. One more question about Jeopardy, and then I want to find out what you're doing now. But with Jeopardy, you know, obviously you have to be really smart. I mean, a lot of us that we think of ourselves, oh, we're pretty sharp. Those questions are rough and so forth. How do they figure out, you know, I mean, is there like an intelligence test that goes into this right off the bat? And is it one of those things where, you you know, they kind of know what subjects the contestants would know, or is it just strictly random? Well, everyone that took the test at Jeopardy, there's a 40-question test, and they had 15 minutes to answer the questions. But they didn't have to put in who is, what is, where is. They just put down the basic answer. If you miss more than 11, bye-bye. So what happens after every uh, testing session, uh, my my assistant and I would do the corrections while everyone else started mingling and chit-chatting about some of the questions that were on the test. And say out of, say, 40 people. I have maybe nine in my hand that of people who pass the test. I have no idea who they are. So I just go up and, and they see I only have nine pieces of paper in my hand, test sheets. I say, okay, if I call your name, raise your hand and uh, please remain seated. Everybody else, if I don't call your name, thanks for being with us. And uh, Julie will walk you down uh, out the door and you come back in three months to try it again. So then I call the names of the nine people who passed the test. And those people stay, the others go bye-bye. Then I hand those people a little index card and I said, put down any three things about yourself, of 
of interest, like Alex does on the show, you know. Oh, I understand you do this. And then we take a picture of everybody with a Polaroid. We take three people at a time and we snip, 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 and then staple them, their picture to the test sheets. And then we play a mock game with three people at a time. And I watch them as they play the game. I do a little chit chat with them, you know, and for personality. And those who, who I felt good, I make a notation. They can't see what I do. I make a notation. And then I don't tell them if they're gonna get on or not. I said, okay, thanks for coming down. If you, if you hear from us, great. If, if you don't hear from us within uh, three or four weeks, don't call us, we'll call you, blah, blah. And then uh, that's how I get my contestants. Well, and have you ever had somebody that was really smart or something, but their personality was particularly offensive, and you gotta, t- you gotta refuse them? Well, there were times where we had people on the show that Alex did not like, yeah. and they keep on winning, kept on winning. And after every taping session, I'd go into Alex's dressing room, and I'd show him uh, the contestants in the bank. We have about 10 or 12 people ready to be on the show. And I'd show them, he'd look at the pictures and their test scores and stuff like that. And Alex would say, say okay, let's, let's go with this one. <laughs> First of all, if people want to look up, see some of the stuff you've done online, where do they go? And, uh, you know, what have you got going now? Well, they can go to uh, YouTube slash Mark Richards, LV, like Las Vegas, no spaces. And then click on videos, and you'll see video clips of me on these talk shows, and then of my appearances on other talk shows, you know, because I was considered an expert on TV game shows, you know, and how to get on, how to win, how to act, how to dress, how to play the game, and stuff like that. So uh, they're there forever and ever and ever and ever. That's great. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Our gourmet chef. Justin Wells of La Petite Maison is back with us, helping you stock your kitchen with all the essentials. Do you love cookbooks? Do you have a particular favorite? What cookbooks should people absolutely have to have in their uh, libraries? Do I love cookbooks? I like the idea of cookbooks. Um, I have, like, tremendous ADD, so I have a hard time following a recipe, and I like to fiddle with stuff, and uh, so I, I tend to, if I look at a cookbook, I tend to get gifted cookbooks a lot. I like to thumb through them for ideas and kind of read the philosophy behind the book and get some ideas from it, but I'm never the guy that just follows them tooth and nail. Uh, it just, they don't, I don't know, it's just not really my style, and I tend to start working on something, and I say, what is this, you know, why does this only have a cup of this, that doesn't make sense, it doesn't seem right, and so I wind up veering off the path, which is good, because sometimes you can draw inspiration, so earlier on in my career and life, I tended to cook a lot more, like, through the French Laundry Cookbook, for example, Um, but a lot of that had to do with just the techniques that were involved in really trying to recreate a dish and then making it your own. Um, when you're baking, obviously, that's much more exacting, and that's probably why I don't do a ton of baking, is that, you know, you really can't veer off the path. I mean, you, you can kind of change some stuff maybe in a cookie recipe, but at the end of the day, if your flour and butter is not correct ratio, it's not going to turn out. And so, um, right. you know, people talk about joy of baking, joy of cooking, things like that. Um, I think those are all great books that give you really strong foundations for stuff where it's like, here is a generic biscuit recipe. Here is a generic cookie recipe. And so I think once you get the basis of those down and the understanding of 
okay, why am I adding, why am I cubing up this butter to add in this way? Why am I doing this this way? Why am I fluffing the, the batter this way? I think that once you conceptually understand that, then you can kind of make stuff your own. And so I, I always revert back to the basics, like buy a general basic cookbook that gives you the understanding. Thanks, Justin. Remember, all our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. Today's conversation features one of the NFL's finest general managers of all time, Ernie Accorsi, joins us to discuss his career with the Colts, Browns, and Giants. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Vegas, here we go! They were there when history was made. One second left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Inside the 20. Touchdown! A Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! The Sports Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling from the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Matt Corks went in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rockin' Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half century or so of American sports. Imagine a career as an NFL executive, working with legendary franchises in Baltimore, Cleveland, and New York. Let's meet him right now. You know, a lot of us have our NFL dreams. Were you one of those fans that wanted to be the starting quarterback or one of the big linebackers, MVP of the Super Bowl? How about an owner? I always liked that. And what about general manager? What a really cool thing that is. And we've got one of the very best with us today to talk about that, Ernie Accorsi. You know him. He was the general manager for three teams in the NFL, the Baltimore Colts, the Cleveland Browns, and the New York Giants. Ernie, as far as I know, you always wanted to be a GM, right? A baseball GM, Steve. Um, now I grew up in the 50s. I was 10 years old in 1951. So the, the sport that you read about mostly and, and was the predominant professional sport was, was Major League Baseball. And I, you know, I was a, a reader of the sporting news every week. And you know, baseball is pretty much of a general manager sport because of trades, particularly off-season. Uh, so I followed all the GMs. And, and football really didn't. Pro football really didn't have general managers. I mean, Tech Schramm was one of the few. Uh, then he was succeeded by Pete Rozelle. But for the most part, it, it was owners and coaches. You know, Major League Baseball, college football, and boxing probably were the major sports of the 50s. Uh, I followed pro football, but, but I wanted to be a baseball general manager. That's, uh, that's really was what I wanted to do. I read a book in 1957 and the Hershey High School Library on Branch Rickey, and I uh, was fascinated by his life, 
and that's kind of what inspired me. I didn't really think I was going to get that far, but but I that was what I really wanted to be. I never really worried about wanting to be a player. I think I evaluated my own talents rather early that that was that wasn't going to be in the cards. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And Branch Rickey was really great because, for one thing, obviously with the whole Jackie Robinson thing, he had a lot of guts, and that had to be inspiring too, right? Where he wasn't afraid to push something that everybody was looking for. If he fails on it, he's over. Yes, and you know he won uh, with two or three different teams uh, starting in the 20s as general manager of the Cardinals. Then he went to the Dodgers, and he built that great team. And then he went to the Pirates. And there are a lot of people that don't realize that he came after he was kind of pushed out of Brooklyn by Walter O'Malley because he was a third owner. And O'Malley, I guess, got the other third to to buy the rest of the shares. So Branch Rickey left, got a job with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and wasn't around in 1960, but, but pretty much built that team with the Clemente team that won the 1960 World Series and beat the Yankees. So you know, Pirates had been down for many, many years. So he was a, a great evaluator of talent. Obviously, the courage uh, that he showed in the foresight by signing Jackie Robinson, who was the perfect person for, for that, that tough chore that he faced, and, you know, the other thing he did is he created the farm system. He was finally stopped by the other owners and by Judge Landis because he was creating this vast farm system. They had to curtail it. Eventually, you know, everybody had farm teams, but he was the first. So very creative. He would wheel and deal and make trades. And and uh, he, he always, um, you know, he, he was a winner everywhere he was. But that first book, when I was 16 years old, just uh, captivated me. And it probably brought out the adventurer in you because that's one of those things where you can actually make make a difference in there. More so, uh, you can have a great manager, you get lucky on somebody coming up and so forth. But otherwise, it's really the GM is the one that gives you the tools. Without the chess pieces, uh, you can't win the championship. Well, particularly in baseball because the managers you know, run the game, make out the lineup cards, have some voice, but they don't have a chance to scout. It's it's really the general manager and his personnel staff. In football, it's the dynamics are different. I mean, the head coach has a lot to say about who was drafted, uh, you know, who you trade for, and it, because you know the he has a chance uh, once the season ends to evaluate talent prior to the draft. Now, when I first came into the league in 1970, the draft was in January, and in my first year. We won the Super Bowl on January 17th, 1971. The draft was 10 days later. Wow. So, we, I mean, nobody had a chance to prepare the draft. Really, not even the GM at the time, Don Klosterman. And we had three scouts. We had Upton Bell, who was Commissioner Burke Bell's son, was a player personnel director. George Young was his assistant. And Dick Szymanski was really the pro scout, did some college scouting. And they really did, you know, the majority of the scouting. And they they did it pretty much off of film because they were all involved too in, in the season that we had just concluded. So we really didn't have much, you know, much time. And, and it, it was interesting if you, if you went back and studied those drafts of all the teams going all the way back into the fifties, they were, they were good drafts. And for the most part, what they did is they picked big name players. And essentially when you pick big name players, you're really picking by production. They didn't become big names by not producing. So uh, you're not taking just fly-by-night names out of nowhere. 
but you're taking names of players that who were on the All-American teams. In the 50s, they had two drafts. They had a draft in November of uh, a partial draft, say the first eight rounds or something. I don't remember how many. And then they would they would draft the rest of the draft in January. But but it was an interesting time because you de- you know you never had the combines. You didn't have pro days. You didn't have workouts uh, on college campuses. You know you couldn't uh, get all the tapes they get now. When I was first getting into the personnel business, it was all film, and they wouldn't send you film to colleges. You had to go to the campus and watch film wow. in a classroom. And sometimes you're with three or four other scouts, and if you weren't the first guy to get the clicker, they decided who they were looking at. Your so scouts were was, really important then back then. Even I mean, they're still important today, obviously, but back then you had the opportunity to find some gem in some small college then that you really couldn't now. Dallas was kind of ahead of all of us. Uh, you know, they and, and, and Pittsburgh followed very quickly behind and actually overtook them. They hired uh, Bill Nunn, who was a, a African American sports editor of, of the Pittsburgh Courier, and he was the guy who found Stallworth and so many of those players from predominantly black schools, and so did Gil Brandt with with the Cowboys. And I mean, once you know they got into that area, they beat everybody to the punch because they were getting great players. I'm on the selection committee, and guess so is Gil Brandt. Of the Black College Hall of Black Schools Hall of Fame, not black players that played in that major schools, the Black College Hall of Fame, and I have conversation every year that we make our selections. I have the same conversation with Shaq Harris, James Harris, and we both say it may be harder to get into that Hall of Fame than Canton. I mean, when you yeah. look at the names that don't even make it into that Hall of Fame, like I, you know, I worked hard to get Ray Chester in there. He finally got in, but. There's so many. There were so many great players, and but scouting, and, and really in those days before, it was it was a lot more discovery. Now it's pretty much evaluation. It was evaluation then too, but you had to find players. And today they're you know they're all there for use through all the various services and all the tapes available. I mean, you, I could sit in my office and I could I don't know how to do it. Thank God I'm not working anymore, but. General managers and scouts now, if they want to get look at a receiver and look at his entire season running one pattern, they can do it. We'll be back with the former general manager of the Baltimore Colts, Cleveland Browns, and New York Giants, Ernie Accorsi, in just a moment. You're listening to Sports Rockin' Tours with Stephen Maggi. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. 
Welcome back to Sports Rock and Tours. You are listening to Ernie Accorsi, former general manager of the Baltimore Colts, Cleveland Browns, and New York Giants. Do you think sometimes we overemphasize some of those stats that come out of the combine? I know some of the Raider scouts said that's what kind of got Al Davis. He got so caught up with speed that he started forgetting about production because he's so caught up with these numbers. The combine's a track beat. You're in, you know, gym shorts. You don't hit anybody. Nobody gets hit in the mouth. So you have to discipline yourself to use it. It's very valuable because sometimes you're not sure about speed. It's just you just have to be careful. Yet you have to use it for what it is. It gives you it gives you some numbers that are important, but it's not football. And as a GM, how do you how do you try to avoid these things like Jamarcus Russell or Brian Bosworth, where everything looked like it was an automatic win and it just didn't work? Is there something like that a GM tries to do to try to get an edge? To you know, is that talking to other people or what? Because Sometimes those are, just don't make sense in terms of numbers. Steve, everybody swings and misses. Uh, you know, Ron Wolf always says, you know, there are no 400 hitters in, in scouting. Well, he doesn't mean no one hits 40%. He means that there aren't, there aren't any Ted Williamses that hit 400. Right. And, and you know, you're all going to miss. You can't get gunshot with a miss. I missed. We all missed. And, I mean, I, I think an injury did it, but I drafted a player in Cleveland. I, I traded up in the second round from the second round to get him lawyer Tillman, that I will go to my grave and convinced he would have been a Hall of Famer. But he held out the entire training camp. And when he finally signed and showed up for the regular season, the first thing he did was break his foot. It was a stress fracture, so it wasn't immediately detectable. And if you know anything about stress fractures, in a big man, 6'4", 240-pound receiver, with phenomenal hands and a 4'4 speed, I mean, with a foot injury, with a stress fracture in your foot, it doesn't heal very well. And really, the, the few chances he got to play was spectacular. But uh, that that choice haunts me forever. He, uh. he had a stress fracture right away in September, so he never got a chance. I had other players that I was convinced were, were going to be great players, and they weren't. I mean, there was something missing. And sometimes, you know, I thought I made some mistakes because I went more on his talent than on his production, but... Uh, we all miss, and you know, as long as the, as long as there are going to as long as there's football, people are going to misevaluate players. It's just human nature. It's sports. It's the way it is. Now there are intangibles out there, and you were the schoolmate actually of our Wake Forest of Brian Piccolo. A great story. Everybody remembers Brian's song with Gail Sears and so forth. But nobody thought Piccolo was going to be a superstar at that point, and he was a solid NFL player. Are you always on the lookout for somebody that can contribute? Maybe they won't be the number one guy. Maybe they'll be on the bench coming off it, but they bring a certain quality to the team that helps put bring everything together? There's there's no question about that. I mean, you're always looking for that. David Tyree was one. We drafted him. He was the best special teams player I had ever seen on, on film. And we use a draft choice because we thought he was going to cover. He's going to make the tackle on every punt and every kickoff. And when we were looking at him and looking at Syracuse, you could see he didn't play much as a receiver, but you could see he could catch. What does he do? He ends up making probably the most important catch in the history of the franchise. Uh, and, and just as a side story of that, I didn't go to practice the day before the Super Bowl. Jerry Reese came up to me after practice and said, Tyree dropped every pass thrown to him today. I said, well, I hope we're not going to play him then. <laughs> okay. And what does he do the next day? He makes the most spectacular catch that 
that anybody can remember in the Super Bowl. Yeah. But Piccolo, now for what, you know, this is an example of what it was like in 1964. Piccolo ran a slow time. What happened, you had the combines, and Blesto timed him. And he ran a slow time. In the, now, he wasn't fast to begin with, but he ran an extra slow time. And that time got out. And the, he led the country in rushing, and he led the country in scoring. And he was on a 5-5 five and five team that had very, you know, couldn't throw the ball that well. John Makovic, later to become a coach, um, was the quarterback. But it wasn't a, in an aerial circus. In fact, the whole uh, ACC was not. Uh, and, and he didn't get drafted. But then when he, when he didn't get drafted, and there were 17 rounds then, he ran for some people, and he ran a decent, you know, for his size. But the thing he had, he, had, he was a lot like Maddie. not as good as Maddie, but Tom Maddie. He had great vision. He always knew where to cut. He always found the open space. He was a better athlete than people thought he was, and he was able to be functional. I mean, as a backup to Sayers, and he played a little bit when Sayers was hurt. But there's always, you know, there's always a reason people don't make it, and there's always a reason that people you don't think are going to make it do make it. And usually it's exactly what you touched on. It's something beneath the surface that you've got to find out. It's something that, that's an intangible. And, I, and I'm thinking if you're going to build a team or you come in and you've got to rebuild a team, is the first place you look, at, for, of course, the coach to make sure that that connects with your vision? And also, I'm thinking of the coach and the quarterback working together. In this NFL, it just seems like you have to have that type of strong connection to really move on to the next phase, which is playoff football. Well, you know, everybody's got their own theories, and there are a lot of different ways to, to win. But my, mine has always been, you start, you got to have the right coach. And then the, the most important thing on the team player-wise to me, is the quarterback. And I, I've always felt you can't really be any better than he is. If you have a lot of surrounding talent and he's good but not great, then you will maximize yourself at being good not great. To win consistently, to, to be a championship team consistently, you have to have a great quarterback. You have to have a quarterback who not necessarily wins the passing rating. You have to have a quarterback who is a championship quarterback. Now, the first quarterback... I came into the league with was John United. So the bar was set pretty high. Okay. And I grew up watching him play. I saw him play, oh God, about 75% of the games. I mean, either in person or on television. I grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania. But once you get the quarterback when you can, you don't force it. So other than him, you better get a passer. You got to protect him. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to pick offensive linemen in the first round on every pick, but you have to protect him, get a terrific offensive line coach and protect him. And then you got to get pass rushers till the cows come home, because the Giants won four Super Bowls, and I'm not so sure that they had one defensive back make the Pro Bowl, but they had pass rushers that could make the Pro Bowl, including the greatest pass rusher to ever play in this league, Lawrence Taylor, and Unimin Yor Strahan and Tuck were pretty good. So, what what won that Super Bowl for us besides Eli was that we got to Brady. I don't know how many times he, he got hit in the first Super Bowl, but it was a lot of times. Now, I, I'm not talking about sacks. I'm talking about got hit and got put down after he played, made the play. This is the greatest quarterback probably of all time. So, I mean, you got to get pass you got to get a quarterback, protect him, and get pass rushers. I mean, certainly you need a big-time receiver. We had Plexico. You need a lot of other things. But you better have those essentials. But those giant teams were great in the sense that they go into these Super Bowls as underdogs. I mean, the one against New England, New England hadn't lost a game. <laughs> it, it was incredible. And they still managed to uh, pull this off. Does that come from that 
I don't want to say confidence, but, you know, you got that belief right off the bat. Oh, no, you know, because people are telling you, oh, there's no way. And then then you look at the point spread, it seems high and so forth. But there's just that belief that it should be us. That Super Bowl was won in the last game of the season when we lost to the Patriots. But our team came out of that game, and, and Coughlin was ahead of everybody on that because a lot of people thought, for, he shouldn't play anybody in that game. We, we, we had nothing to gain from it because we had already clinched the playoff berth. And we couldn't win a division, so you know there was no, there was no tangible gain. But Coughlin said we're going to play them tough because it's going to be important to the mental state of our team, and he was right. Uh, I mean, I didn't say a word to him, but I would have been wrong. And you to a, to a player, if you talk to the players, they will tell you that they came out of that game. We almost beat them. And they were playing for undefeated season now. So to a player, our team came out of that with the attitude is we can beat this team. So, it, it, you know, and it wasn't a, a fluky game. I mean, it was a tough, defensive, hard-nosed game, and we played them even all day. And we had the quarterback who could play in the clutch. Thanks, Ernie. We're going to continue our conversation with Ernie Accorsi next month. You won't want to miss that. Next week, we'll have information on our brand new website, an expanded podcast, and a new blog. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchin. He's in. Touchdown, Chargers. 87-yard rip. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com.